Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. All of you who have listened to this show for some time know that I'm a big fan of the Old West and its history. One of my shows is 1001 Stories from the Old West, and it does very well here for us. That interest of mine in stories of the Old West was passed down by my father, who was raised near Cimarron, New Mexico, on a ranch in the shadow of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. He grew up on a ranch where Philmont Boy Scout Ranch stands today. I visited Philmont a few years ago, met the ranch operator in his office, shared our family history there, and noticed that on an old wall map in the office, the lake on the property was named after our family, Hagedorn. My grandpa and his brother had tried to make it a settlement, selling shares to outsiders who could come and settle, but there was a huge dispute over water rights and the rights to that lake. It went to the state Supreme Court, and they lost. They later sold their ranch and property to Phillips Petroleum, which, in lieu of finding any oil, gave it to the Boy Scouts. Ownership of water rights is and always has been a big deal out west, especially when it comes to grazing land. That's pretty country out there. I have no idea if that lake is still called Hagedorn Lake today. They probably changed it to Lake Philmont. Time changes everything. One more note on Philmont before we get to the story of Kid Curry. As a six-year-old boy, my dad played in an abandoned ranch house not far from their house, and that, as it turns out, was Kit Carson's hacienda, where he stayed at Rayado. Kit was a natural-born scout, explorer, and Indian fighter. He had a good friend in Lucian Maxwell, who founded a settlement there called Rayado, and he hired Kit to provide security from marauding Apache and Comanche Indians in 1849. Kit had married a Spanish girl in Taos and had a home and six children there, but also kept a small ranch at Rayado as an investment. Kit was always being called out to guide troops or chase Indians, and was never much for staying long in one place. Kit Carson isn't mentioned much these days. In fact, all the men who helped settle the West are seen as dim vestiges of America's past now, but they were hard men and thought of as true heroes in their time. I've done stories so far on Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp, Tom Horn, The Wild Bunch, and others, including one of our listener favorites, an episode titled The Quick and the Dead, which features a collection of stories about gunfighters, good and bad. One of the most common questions historians get is, who was the baddest outlaw in the West? There were many fast draws, like Ben Thompson and Wes Harden, and some, like those two, were stone-cold killers who later reformed. Some, like Billy the Kid, just landed on the dark side by a twist of fate. They weren't bad, just fast, but ended up with the wrong crowd. Others were train robbers who weren't known as killers, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who had a gang called the Wild Bunch, which had its killers, like Harvey Logan, who would kill at a moment's notice. Some of you might remember a very famous old photo of the Wild Bunch, three of them sitting, two standing, all dressed in their finest with top hats. It's called the Fort Worth Five photo, and it was taken in that city in 1900, in John Swartz's gallery at 705 and one-half Main Street, right on the edge of what locals called Hell's Half Acre, a section of town that offered every vice imaginable to man. From left to right, and I'll post it at Facebook slash 1001heroes. From left to right, first, Harry Longbaugh, known as the Sundance Kid, Will Carver, Ben, the tall Texan Kilpatrick, 
Harvey, Kid Curry Logan, and Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy. Harvey Kid Curry Logan is shown with his hand on Butch Cassidy's shoulder. From 1896 to 1901, these gang members and others made their living robbing banks and trains. And not too long before this picture was taken, Butch and Sundance had cleared $32,000 worth of gold coins robbing a national bank. Butch and Sundance felt safe there on the streets of Fort Worth because they were hardly known, but they underestimated how well-known Harvey Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry, was, and how many people were hunting for him. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were bank and train robbers, not known as killers. Harvey Logan, known as Kid Curry, was a thief and a murderer, and he enjoyed killing lawmen. He was also known as being lightning fast with a gun. As for that Fort Worth Five picture, there's an interesting side story of just how the Pinkerton agency came across that picture to be found later in this story. Kid Curry, in the estimation of the law enforcement people who wanted him alive or dead, was a psychopathic killer and one of the baddest men in the West, if not the baddest. Lowell Spence, the Pinkerton detective, whose job it was to track Harvey Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry, and take him down, once said of him, It was almost suicide to go after him. He wasn't the kind to run and hide. He would plot and plan to ambush you. He was an expert with a handgun or a rifle, and he could endure the most difficult weather conditions. He wasn't a big man physically, nor was he a braggart, but he was a cold, calculating killer. I recall when he was finally captured in Knoxville, and I was asked by United States attorneys to come down and identify him, because the kid calmly insisted his name was, I think, Wilson. Of course, this was in the days before fingerprints. Logan came out to the bars and stared at me. We engaged in a little bit of small talk then, before I turned away to tell the U.S. attorney that this was Harvey Logan. The kid said quietly, I've been looking for you a long time, Spence. When I get out of here, I'll be sure to look you up. Logan knew I'd been trailing him for years, and we sort of knew each other. It gives me a chill, even now, many years later, to recall him staring out through those bars. I'm sure I was number one on his list. When he named a man he was going to kill, like that rancher Jim Winters, the kid never failed to make good on his threat. After he escaped from Knoxville, I trailed him for months. It was a very tense time. I never knew when he would appear suddenly, gun in hand. Lawmen credited Harvey Logan, alias Kid Curry, with killing 15 men on the record. Off the record, no one could guess, and Logan never talked. He once rode hundreds of miles to wait patiently all night to murder a rancher, Jim Winters, who Logan believed had killed Logan's brother. Harvey had three brothers, Hank, John, often called Johnny, and Lonnie, all born in Iowa, their family's roots being from Rowan County, Kentucky. I checked genealogy records, which exist at RootsWeb, as legendary Western writer James Horan had Harvey and his brothers born in Kentucky, and I wanted to double-check that it was Iowa, which all other researchers list. In 1876, their mother died, causing all four to leave their home to live with their aunt Betty Lee on a farm in Dotson, Missouri. It was said the Cherokee blood showed in their thick black hair, dark eyes, and dark skin. Harvey Andrew, not Alexander, as many say. Logan was nine years old and an orphan when he came to live with his aunt, but it was a short-lived visit because before he hit the age of 10, he and brothers Hank, Johnny, and Lonnie 
headed for Texas, accompanied by their close friend Bob Lee, Betty's son, who would later change his name to Bob Curry. When they left the farm, their aim was to become cowboys. They started with the Cross L outfit near Big Springs, Texas, then migrated to Pueblo, Colorado. Harry, at 16 years of age, enjoying breaking horses, drinking whiskey, and enjoying the company of young women. There's a legend that he fathered over 80 kids in Texas, all this before the age of 17, as he didn't stay in Texas long. Seeking adventure, he and his pals headed for Colorado. He got in a bad saloon fight in Pueblo. He had a tendency of getting wild with just a few drinks. He shot up the bar there and had to leave Pueblo in a hurry. From Pueblo, Harvey Logan, now wanted in Colorado, arrived at Hole in the Wall, Wyoming, a place known then as an outlaw hideout, as it had only a few entrances and those were easily guarded. It was there that Harvey met flat-nosed George Curry, and that inspired Harvey, as well as his brothers, and cousin Ben, to change their last name from Harvey to Curry. They called Harvey Kid in Texas, so when he took George's name, he became Kid Curry. During the 1883 Roundup at Crooked Creek, John Lee hired the kid for the Judith Basin Fall Roundup. The kid also worked for the Circle C and Circle Diamond outfits, and for Robert Coburn at Flat Willow Creek in Montana's Little Rockies country, as well as Granville Stewart. This was the summer of 84. Working as extra riders, the brothers were paid off in the fall and spent the winter chopping wood, which they sold the next spring before rejoining the circle. A Missouri River trader named Dad Marsh taught them all how to read and write. Harvey and Hank pooled their savings from cowboying and actually bought a ranch, along with their friend Jim Thornhill, about six miles south of the Cowan mining town of Landusky, Montana. This was not country then for the squeamish. To give you a better idea, the town of Landusky was named after the first settler, Pike Landusky, a tough Missourian with long, powerful arms who worked, drank, and fought a lot. When he fought, he would beat his opponent until he couldn't fight, ever again. He also killed Indians for sport. Once, while on a drunken spree, Landusky killed the wife of White Calf, a Blackfoot. Her warrior husband hunted down Landusky and shot him with a buffalo gun, in the face, tearing away half Landusky's jaw and face. He lived 17 more days on whiskey, and to everyone's surprise, didn't die managing to survive a wagon trip to a surgeon who pulled him through. Friends after that were quoted as saying, with typical Western humor, after that there was no telling how good-looking he might have been. Pike's trading post became the place where a wide assortment of characters would come and go. Outlaws, army deserters, fugitives from justice, miners, lumbermen, as well as a place where lawmen came and went on their own risk. Pike's trading post was officially made the town of Landusky in 1882. Hank Logan got tired of ranching and left for California, while the three brothers worked hard to build a ranch and prosper. Landusky continued his reputation of being a tough man, but at the same time he was father of three daughters, all of whom, according to legend, were attractive. He was also the closest neighbor of the Logans. Landusky had a partner named Jake Harris, known as Jew Jake to the locals, and together they built a saloon in the front of a big building that also had a store in the rear that offered gloves, overalls, and overshoes. Jew Jake was known to be a gunfighter, and his most recent one, with the sheriff of Great Falls, had cost him a leg, so he walked on crutches. 
"'When he worked at the bar, he only used his left-hand crutch, "'keeping his right hand free to grab his number eight sawed-off shotgun when needed. "'When things got real busy, he used the shotgun as a crutch. "'As for the Logans, Johnny was the youngest, "'as well as the would-be bad man and gunfighter. "'Harvey was the quiet one, but, as one neighbor later said of him, "'the bad men tended to walk around him. "'He didn't get pushed around too often.' The Currys just couldn't stay out of trouble in Montana, and this is how it happened. The Currys and Landusky got along okay until young Lonnie started courting Elfie Landusky, and Landusky objected, protested to Harvey, thinking it was Harvey who was dating her. And when the dating didn't stop, Landusky threatened to shoot Harvey. That tension went on for a year until Landusky, who was close with the sheriff, had Harvey and Lonnie arrested for rustling. Harvey was jailed, and beaten badly. The sheriff of Choteau County put them under Landusky's custody, and once, when Harvey wasn't wearing a gun, Landusky chained him to a log and threatened him, saying he would shoot him if he ever saw him in Landusky. To drive the point home, he beat him severely. Hearing this, the younger Johnny tried to convince Harvey to shoot it out with Landusky in a stand-up fight, but Harvey said he would settle the score with Landusky in his own way and in his own time. The rustling charge, which was bogus, was eventually dismissed. As the fall of 1894 approached, someone in Landusky suggested a community Christmas dinner and dance, and from that moment on, everyone in Landusky was busy in one way or another getting ready. Riders spread invitations across the lonely frontier that Landusky was entertaining Christmas week, and all were welcome. And before Christmas Day arrived, Drifters and settlers from up to 60 miles away trickled into Landusky. They came on horseback, by boat, on mules, in wagons, and by foot. By Christmas Eve, there were more than a 100 guests, the largest gathering ever recorded by then in that territory. Dinner was served, the highlight being four quarts of oysters carefully brought up the river and prepared by Tie-Up George, the best cow cook in the Little Rockies. That was in northeast Montana. The Curry brothers loaned their large new barn for the dance, while Lonnie, an excellent fiddler, provided the music, along with a Mason and Hamblin organ which had been brought in by wagon. For two days and nights the guests danced, ate, and drank. Known gunmen, rustlers, and outlaws with a price on their head checked their weapons before joining and dancing in the barn. Apparently, somehow, some way, Landusky had managed to put the Currys on edge. Maybe Elfie refused Lonnie's offer of marriage. Maybe there was an insult. History doesn't tell us. Finally, by the night of the 26th, the dancing and fun had ended, yet many of the visitors had gathered at Jew Jake's bar to drink into the night. That next morning, December 27th, a light snow fell. Right around 10.30 a.m., Pike Landusky and a close friend were standing at the rough-hewn bar. Suddenly the door opened and Kid Curry followed by Lonnie and Jim Thornhill, walked to where Landusky was standing and slapped him on the shoulder. As Landusky turned, Harvey hit him on the jaw, knocking him down to the floor. Lonnie and Thornhill drew their guns and waved the other people back as Curry leaped on Landusky's back. Pike, then about 50 years old and wearing a thick bearskin coat, fought desperately to get to his feet, but Kid Curry kept beating him unmercifully. Finally, Pike was forced to do something he'd never done, and that was to cry out for help. Tommy Carter, an old prospector, appealed to Lonnie and Thornhill to put a stop to it, but they ignored his protest. 
Curry continued smashing Pike Landusky's head against the floor, and all Pike could do was weakly wave his hand and surrender. Finally, as Pike got to his knees, a gun could be seen in his hand, but he fumbled with it for a second, and one second was all Kid Curry needed to draw his single-action Colt forty-five and fire two shots, which killed Landusky on the spot. Customers ran out to the street along with Jew Jake, who couldn't grab his shotgun as he was being watched closely by Lonnie and Thornhill. Johnny Curry pulled up in a wagon, and Harvey, Lonnie, and Thornhill jumped in and were gone within minutes. Kid Curry's life as an ex-rancher, outlaw, and gunfighter really began that morning. The Curry brothers had a number of friends who encouraged Kid Curry to stand trial, but he rode off when a murder warrant was issued for his arrest, and that was all she wrote. He was headed for Wyoming and wouldn't be around when Thornhill and Lonnie were acquitted and Kid Curry was pardoned for what was called an act of self-defense. We'll return to the baddest outlaw of them all, Harvey Kid Curry Logan, part one, right after these sponsor messages. His brothers had asked Harvey to stay, saying it would go down to self-defense, which it later did, as we said. But Harvey knew the judge, whose name was Du Bois, who he was sure would rule against him. So he left the area, headed for the hole in the wall. Kid Curry rode to Wyoming, while Johnny and Lonnie and Ben stayed with the ranch. The kid joined the Black Jack Ketchum Band of Outlaws, which was pretty well known. In the summer of 95, James M. Winters and A. Gill bought the Dan Tesla outfit adjacent to the Curry Ranch. Not long after they purchased the property, Johnny Curry, thinking himself a bad man, rode over to tell them that he not only owned their ranch, but all the irrigation rights. Winters showed Curry the bill of sale, which sent Curry into a rage, and, slapping the gun on his hip, shouted that they had ten days to get off the land or suffer the consequences. The Harlem Enterprise paper would later write that Winters, who was good with a gun, drove Curry off his property. A few weeks later, a visitor at the ranch borrowed a horse and was riding down the road when a bullet passed through the crown of his hat. Winters took it as a message that Curry was out to get him, and he made it known publicly that they were welcome to try. On the morning of February 1, 1896, Johnny Curry rode up to the door of the Winters Gill Ranch, and when Winters, armed with a shotgun, stepped out, Johnny Curry drew and fired, missing Winters. But Winters didn't miss. He blew Curry out of his saddle and Curry died not long after. When word reached Harry Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry, who was in Wyoming, he vowed to avenge his brother's death. Lonnie Curry buried his brother Johnny and sold the ranch, buying a saloon along with his cousin Bob Lee. Lonnie was well-liked, and the Curry Brothers Club Saloon prospered. Bob Lee was to change his name to Bob Curry and become an outlaw. Bob and Lonnie later sold the bar and rode to Wyoming to join their brother Harry and rode to Wyoming to join their brother Harvey, where they began robbing trains and banks. Over the next two years, the Flat-Nosed Curry Gang became one of the largest outlaw gangs in the West. Using the KC Ranch on the Powder River as their base of operations, they plundered sheep and cattle ranches, robbed post offices, trains, and banks in Utah, Montana, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Although Flat-Nosed George was in command, it was Kid Curry who planned and led the robberies. In April of 1897, 
Deputy Sheriff William Dean somehow got it in his mind he was going to capture the gang single-handedly. As he rode up to the front door of the KC Ranch House, he shouted, Hands up! to Kid Curry. Before the echo of his hands up order had died away, Kid Curry shot him out of the saddle. The deputy sheriff's body was then dragged through the brush and deposited on the road to be discovered the next day by a passing rancher. On June 28, 1897, the kid took part in his first bank robbery in Bell Force, South Dakota. They got the money, but lost one of their gang members named Tom O'Day, whose horse had run off without him. A posse tried to follow them after the robbery and actually cornered them near Levens, Ferguson County, Montana. Flatnose George and George Putney were captured, but Kid Curry, who was shot in the wrist, leaving a scar, held out until his horse was shot out from under him. He finally surrendered only when he considered the situation to be hopeless. The fugitives were placed in the Deadwood, South Dakota jail, but two weeks later, Kid Curry overpowered the guard took the keys, and freed the other gang members. Now on the run, they held up post offices, stole horses and guns and supplies, and fought off posses. They headed for the hole in the wall. Later that winter, a posse invaded the hole in the wall, which then was crammed with 30 to 40 outlaws who had arrived to spend the winter there, and a long shootout ensued. But the outlaws were well fortified, using the terrain and their fortified shelter to their advantage, leaving the posse with only one option, and that was to ride out. On June 2, 1899, they robbed a Union Pacific Northern Flyer train near Wilcox, Wyoming. Two robbers ordered the engineer and fireman to uncouple the express car and move out across the bridge a few yards ahead of the halted engine. Then the other robbers blew up the railroad bridge. When the robbers ordered the attendant, a man named Woodcock, to open the door of the express car, he refused, so the bandits blew the door open. Woodcock was knocked out by the force of the blast, and when he came to, he was too dazed to remember the combination of the safe. They then blew the safe door open. The kid wanted to kill Woodcock, but Butch Cassidy held him back. From that point on, Butch was constantly having to hold Kid Curry back from violence. After the robbery, the train crew helped investigators to identify the robbers as Harvey Logan, Flat-nosed George Curry, Butch Cassidy, and Elsie Lay. Posses were immediately formed and took up the chase, during which Kid Curry shot Sheriff Joe Hazen. This stopped the pursuit long enough to allow the wild bunch to ford a stream and hide their trail, which slowed down the pursuit. But the posse was somehow able to capture the fugitives' horses, forcing the gang to escape on foot, where they finally reached a sheep ranch at Castle Creek, where they were able to rest up. The next day they hiked to the Tisdale Mountains on the North Fork of the Powder River, where they were able to resupply and get horses. More lawmen had joined the hunt, but the robbers made it to the hole in the wall and found refuge there. Charlie Seringo, a Pinkerton detective, was now assigned to the task of bringing Kid Curry to justice. He made friends with Elfie Landusky Curry, who called herself Curry after burying Lonnie's child. Seringo worked under an alias, calling himself Charles L. Carter, and passing himself off as an outlaw. In this manner, he became friends with Jim Thornhill because he believed that Jim had been keeping regular correspondence with the kid. While Seringo was trying to get a hint as to the kid's location, Logan was laying low at Robber's Roost in Utah. He rode to Alma, New Mexico with Butch Cassidy and some other outlaws, and there they took on honest jobs as cowmen on the W.S. Ranch. The foreman and the manager were very happy with their work, 
since their presence somehow stopped all the rustling that had been going on. On July 11, 1899, while still at the W.S. Ranch in Alma, New Mexico, Kid Curry, Elsie Lay, and Sam Blackjack Ketchum robbed a train near Folsom, New Mexico. A posse led by Sheriff Ed Farr cornered the gang near an area called Turkey Creek, which resulted in a long gun battle that wounded Elsie Lay and Sam Ketchum. Sheriff Ed Farr was killed, and his deputy Henry Love was wounded. Later, Henry Love would die from his wounds. Elsie Lay and Ketchum were captured, and Ketchum, who had been shot by the posse, died of blood poisoning before he could stand trial. 1899 and 1900 were to prove deadly years for the Wild Bunch. Elsie Lay was sentenced to life for the murder of Sheriff Farr. Kid Curry escaped the posse, but the Folsom incident caused the kid, Butch Cassidy, and their cohorts to leave the Alma, New Mexico area. The law was closing in. The ranch was sorry to see them go, having no idea, or pretending to have no idea, that these cowboys were actually killers and thieves. Harvey fled to San Antonio and holed up at Fanny Porter's brothel. There he met Della Moore, better known as Annie Rogers, and we show her picture, too, at the Facebook 1001 Heroes site. The two began an affair that would last over the next several years. In March, Harvey and Butch Cassidy's gang member Will Carver were recognized in St. John's, Arizona, when Harvey passed notes suspected of being from the Wilcox robbery. Local Sheriff Edward Beeler went after the pair. When deputies Andrew Gibbons and Frank Lesseur caught up with the pair on March 28th towards Alma, New Mexico. Along the way, Sheriff George Scarborough and Cattleman Walter Birchfield began to follow their trail, but the kid was too smart for them. Discovering they were being followed, he and Carver ambushed the pair on April 5th, wounding Birchfield and killing Scarborough. Backing up just a few months, in January of 1900, Lonnie Curry, who had been with the kid during the Folsom robbery, went to his aunt's house in Missouri. Soon afterward, some marked bills from the Wilcox train robbery were passed in Dodson, Missouri, and on February 28, 1900, a number of lawmen arrived at Mrs. Lee's cabin, but Lonnie wasn't going to go without a fight. He was killed by a lawman in a shootout there. Aunt Betty Lee's son, Bob, had already been arrested for rustling and sent to prison in Wyoming. Harvey was the last of the outlaw Logan brothers still alive. Hank had never gone bad. He was out in California. By April of 1900, they were back at work rustling and robbing, and on the 17th of that month, Flatnose George was caught rustling and killed in Thompson, Utah. As previously mentioned, a posse led by sheriffs William Priest of Uintah County Sam Jenkins and Jesse Tyler of Grand County trapped Flatnose George after he'd driven off his horses. He refused to surrender, and he was mortally wounded in the ensuing gunfight. When Kid Curry heard of the death of Flatnose George, he rode to Utah to exact revenge and caught up with two of the lawmen who had cornered Flatnose George in Moab, shooting Sheriff Jesse Tyler and Deputy Samuel Jenkins in a brazen daytime gunfight. They became two of the many lawmen killed by Kid Curry. Back in Brown's Hole, Kid Curry assumed leadership of the gang, later merging the gang with Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch. The next job was robbing a Union Pacific train near Tipton, Wyoming, on August 29, 1900. While the train was getting up steam, Kid Curry climbed into the engineer's cab by crawling over the coal tender. He held two six-guns on the engineer and ordered him to stop. Do you remember the express car guard, Woodcock? 
who was guarding the loot during the Wilcox robbery? He was also on duty for this one, but this time he gave up without a fight, not being desirous of being dynamited again. The bandits still needed to blow the safe. The first newspaper story said the robbers got 55000 but later reports contradicted that and said only $50 was in the safe. The truth was never arrived at. The train crew identified Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and Kid Curry as the outlaws. After the robbery, the bunch split up. Kid Curry and Ben Kilpatrick, known as the Tall Texan, hid out at Hill's Half Acre in Fort Worth, Texas, while Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and Bill Carver went to Winnemucca, Nevada, and planned another job. Every time I hear that town's name, Winnemucca, which is pretty rare, I think of the Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere, and Winnemucca's part of the chorus. By that time, Butch and Sundance were planning on escaping to South America, and they needed extra money to pursue their dream of buying a ranch. On their guest list was the mysterious Etta Place. I couldn't resist adding this Winnemucca story from the Nevada Traveler. According to an online article dated November 16, 2020, entitled Butch Cassidy and the Great Winnemucca Bank Robbery at NevadaGram.com, Butch Cassidy wasn't there. It's an interesting story. Here it is in part. By the way, the writer's name wasn't given. Winnemucca is a tranquil town on the Humboldt River, a trading post transformed by the railroad into a lively shipping center, a bumptious cow town and county seat. Its history resembles that of dozens of other western railroad towns except for the one transcendent event. On September 19, 1900, the story goes, Butch Cassidy rode into Winnemucca and robbed the local bank. Butch and the boys got clean away, galloping out of town in a hail of bullets with 32000 in gold. Later on, the story tells us, he added insult to injury by sending the bank a photograph of himself and the boys in fancy new suits, stiff collars, and derby hats. With it was a mocking thank-you note expressing appreciation for the Winnemucca money that they were spending on their fun. It is a delicious story and has been told and retold countless times. I've told it myself, the writer says. It's such a wonderful story that the community for many years celebrated Butch Cassidy's days each September in honor of the great event. But unfortunately, it is not a true story. In fact, Butch Cassidy didn't send that picture, and the evidence is clear that he was never in Winnemucca in his life. The robbery did take place, of course. Maybe Butch Cassidy knew it was going to happen. He may well have had a hand in making the arrangements. And it is clear that some of his larcenous friends in the Wild Bunch were involved. But no matter who robbed the Winnemucca Bank, no one who was there that day ever forgot it. Winnemucca, 1900. Like a new mother gazing down at her sleeping babe, the September sun lavished light and warmth on the dusty berg at the big bend of the Humboldt. The town was busy with horses when sharply at noon the schoolhouse doors burst open and the pent-up kids came streaming out and down the steps to home for lunch. Some of the boys liked to walk down Bridge Street to the river and chunk rocks into the water until it was time to go back to class. So it was that nine-year-old Lee Case and a couple of pals were on their way back from the river one day when they trooped past the empty livery stable and saw some cowboys sitting by the open doorway. In their friendly way, the cowboys struck up a conversation with the boys. The next day they saw the men there again and talked to them some more. They were just drifting cowboys passing through, making small talk about the town, wondering how many deputies there were, and one thing and another. 
East of town, about ten miles, another boy got to know the cowboys. Ten-year-old Vic Button rode into Golconda to school by horseback from the C.S. Ranch every day, passing their camp in a field down near the river where there was a well for drinking water. There was nothing out of the ordinary about that. The roundups were about over, and plenty of cowboys were moving to the country. Vic would have ridden right on by the men's camp, except for the handsome white horse that caught his eye. Vic rode over and asked the cowboy if he'd like to trade his white horse. The cowboy laughed and said, No, he'd keep him a while. But Vic had fallen in love with that big white horse. The next day at his father's ranch, he picked out a fine, strong saddle horse and rode it to the camp on his way to school in hopes of a trade. But it was no dice. The cowboys were friendly and jawed with the kid and wondered out loud of what the best way might be to get to southern Idaho in a hurry from there and then nodded their heads when Vic pointed out Soldier Pass. Vic rode a different horse past that camp to school each day, hoping one of them would take the cowboy's eye the way the white horse had taken his. But the cowboy wouldn't trade. September 19th was another golden day, and at noon the schoolboys hurried home for lunch as usual. Carl Smith took his customary route to the corner of 4th Street and then turned to walk along the sidewalk next to the First National Bank. As usual, he looked in the window as he went by. But most unusually, he saw Mr. McBride, Mr. Calhoun, and Mr. Hill standing by their desks behind the customer counter with their hands up in the air. Two men were pointing long-barreled pistols at their frightened faces. Over by the big safe, a man with a scraggy yellow beard had hold of Mr. Nixon by the shoulder with one hand, and with the other held a great gleaming knife at his throat. Carl walked directly home as usual, ate his lunch in silence, and went back to school by the long way, so completely flummoxed by what he'd seen that he didn't say a word about it to anyone until it was all over. Meanwhile, Lee Case and Slats Rutherford were walking past the courthouse when they heard a burst of loud popping and stopped in wonder at the sound. What they heard was George Nixon shooting a six-gun in the air on the street outside the bank. He had opened the safe with that knife at his throat and watched helplessly as the bearded man reached in and thrust three bags full of gold coins into an ore sack that he'd brought along. Afterwards, he emptied the money drawers in Nixon's private office of the $10 and $20 gold coins kept there. Then everyone had been herded into the bank's small backyard. Nixon and his three employees and W.S. Johnson, a horse buyer who'd been in Nixon's office when the robbers arrived. While the bearded man held them at gunpoint, the other two robbers jumped the back fence and ran down the alley to their tethered horses. When the man with the blonde beard had gone over the fence after them, Nixon led the rush back into the bank. Grabbing up his hidden revolver, Nixon ran out into the street to give the alarm. Johnson, the horse buyer, meanwhile snatched the pumping gun off the wall, ran back into the yard and over the fence, and drew down on the robbers as they sped away on horseback. He pulled the trigger, but, click, the gun was empty. Just then, Deputy Sheriff George Rose ran out of the courthouse with a rifle in his hand. He raced past Lee and Slats and climbed a windmill that gave him a view over the slaughterhouse roof. Another spatter of popping broke out, and the boys followed him up the tower in time to see that the robbers were having a little trouble getting out of town. Galloping down 2nd Street, one of them had seen Sheriff Charles McDeed standing outside the reception saloon and sent him ducking back inside with a pistol shot. They had taken the corner at Crosses Creek full tilt, and in the process, 
"'the money bag had slipped loose "'and fallen on the street, scattering coins. "'The robbers hauled up their horses "'and wheeled and plunged back to where the sack lay in the street. "'One of the men dismounted "'and handed it back up to a second man "'while the third man was attending to the pursuit with his six-gun. "'Back at the bank, "'Johnson threw his pump-gun down in the alley in disgust, "'and after George Nixon emptied his gun in the air, "'Calhoun, the stenographer, followed the robbers on foot.' As Golconda's newspaper, The Silver State, explained the next day, he accidentally turned the corner where the men had dropped that sack, and one of the robbers good-naturedly took three shots at Mr. Calhoun, who promptly fell behind the fence. As Calhoun tumbled out of sight, and the robber leapt back into the saddle, the door of the cottage behind the bandits opened. Chris Lane poked his head out and angrily began lecturing the horsemen about shooting off their guns inside the town limits. A bullet splintered the doorframe over his head, and he jumped back inside. The three men spurred their horses and dashed away, leaving some of the gold coins glittering in the dirt where the bag had fallen. The pursuers on foot paused to scratch in the street for coins while the bandits raced out of town on the Golconda Road. Seeing them go, Deputy Rose climbed down from the windmill and hurried to a nearby railroad spur where he commandeered a switch engine and its crew to chase the rapidly departing bad men. When Lee and Slats climbed on too, when school kids Lee and Slats climbed on too, Deputy Rose ordered them off and they had to jump down. But as soon as the deputy turned his back, Slats scrambled back on board. The robbers had a good lead on the locomotive, and at the Sloan Ranch, about eight miles out of town, they changed over to fresh horses. In the process, they took three fine saddle horses belonging to George Nixon, including his personal favorite. They galloped on with the little switch engine slowly gaining. Deputy Rose was poised at its nose, waiting to get within rifle range, and little Slats Rutherford had his head down and his heart in his throat, hanging on to the back of the engine. About eleven miles out of town, Deputy Rose began lobbing shots at the fleeing robbers, and the Silver State the next day gave him credit for wounding one of Nixon's horses. Nevertheless, the barbed wire fence that kept the horseman penned beside the tracks had been cut and they sprinted north out of rifle range to another change of horses near their little camp by the river. There they transferred the gold to a pack horse and rode off into the hills. Posses were formed, trackers put on the trail, and telegrams were sent to law officers in the surrounding districts. The chase was on. If the men dispatched from Golconda had taken a slightly different route, they might have cut the trail ahead of the robbers. As it was, they caught up to them as they were changing horses at Clover Valley on the way to Soldier Pass. The posse couldn't keep up with the fresh horses, but it did get close enough that one of the bandits stood up in his stirrups to yell back at them, Give the white horse to the kid on the C.S. ranch! They did, and for years afterward, Vic Button rode his white horse Patsy all around that country. After that, nothing. The robbers had disappeared. There was no lack of suspects. Even before the dust of the chase settled, the Silver State printed a long roster of candidates. In describing the tail end of the chase a week after the robbery, the Silver State mentioned that two hard characters from Wyoming, who had been around White Rock for some time, are also believed to be connected with the robbery. George Nixon pressed a vigorous investigation. He hired Tom Horn, the notorious enforcer of the Wyoming Cattlemen's Association, and paid numerous informants. We did a story on Tom Horn here at 1001 that's well worth catching up with. There's also a movie starring Steve McQueen that's worth watching, 
I believe it's called I, Tom Horn. In correspondence with the Pinkerton Detective Agency, Nixon guaranteed payment of 1000 for each of the robbers, dead or alive, and said he would also commit one-fourth of the recovered loot, and even more if there were significant risk or expense involved. About six weeks after the robbery, someone got around to searching the campsite near the river and found the torn-up scraps of three letters which Nixon himself taped back together and sent to the Pinkertons. One of the letters, postmarked September 1, 1900, at Riverside, Wyoming, was addressed to C.E. Rowe, Golconda, Nevada. Dear friend, it said, yours at hand this evening. We are glad to know you are getting along well. In regards to sale, enclosed letter will explain everything. I am so glad that everything is favorable. We have left bags, so write us at Encampment, Wyoming. Hoping to hear from you soon. I am, as ever, your friend, Mike. Another letter was written on blue paper with the letterhead of attorney D.A. Preston of Rock Springs, Wyoming. It was dated August 24, 1900, and read, My dear sir, several influential parties are becoming interested, and the chances of the sale are becoming favorable. Yours truly, D.A. Preston. The third letter was written in the same handwriting as the second, and on the same blue paper, but with no letterhead and no salutation. Send me a map of the country, it said, and describe as near as you can the place where you found the black stuff, so I can go to it. Tell me how you want it handled. You don't know its value. If I can get hold of it first, I can fix a good many things favorable. Say nothing to anyone about it. Was signed simply, P. Douglas A. Preston was Butch Cassidy's lawyer, and had represented other members of the Wild Bunch in their scrapes with the law. There were other hints of a Wyoming connection. One of the getaway horses were a Wyoming brand and was discovered to have been rustled. There were those two hard characters from Wyoming who reportedly met the robbers in the wilderness of southeastern Idaho and disappeared with them. A few years ago, two bound volumes of letters were found in the basement of the old bank building. They turned out to be copies of George Nixon's business correspondence from February 24, 1900 to October 9, 1905. These letters were later given to Lee Burke, a longtime Winnemucca resident and ardent student of its history. In turn, Mr. Burke passed them on to the Nevada Historical Society. The letters shed light on a number of important events of the time, and 28 of them are devoted to various aspects of the robbery. One interesting aspect of the letters is that nowhere is there any suggestion that the famous photograph or any note or other communications had been received from the bandits. Mr. Burke read every issue of the Silver State for years after the robbery, and nowhere had he found reference to the infamous photograph or the mocking note. In fact, it was the Pinkertons who sent George Nixon the photograph about five months after the robbery took place. That photo was discovered by a Wells Fargo detective working undercover as a gambler in Fort Worth, Texas, to track down the survivors of the Black Jack Ketchum gang. The detective was strolling down Main Street one day when he happened to pass the Schwartz Photography Studio and noticed a picture on display of five dapper dudes in their new threads. He was startled and pleased to recognize the handsome young man standing on the left as Bill Carver, one of the men he was searching for. The others were quickly identified as Harvey Logan, Kid Curry, Harry Longabaugh, alias Harry Alonzo, alias the Sundance Kid, Ben Kilpatrick, alias the Tall Texan, another one of the Ketchum Bunch, and Butch Cassidy. 
Wells Fargo sent a copy of the photograph to the Pinkertons, who were investigating the Winnemucca robbery on behalf of the American Bankers Association. They sent it along with some mugshots for George Nixon in Winnemucca for his identification. While I am satisfied that Cassidy was interested in the robbery, Nixon wrote in reply on January 8, 1901, he was not one of the men who entered the bank. A month and a half later, however, Nixon conceded, so far as his Cassidy is concerned, he will be willing to take chances in paying the reward for him upon the evidence now in hand. But he emphasized that Cassidy had not been one of the robbers. I am trying to get the description of Cassidy from a person who formerly knew him, as the photograph you sent me is the likeness of a man with a great deal squarer cut face and massive jaws, in fact somewhat of a bulldog appearance, while the man, Whiskers, struck me as a face that, in case it was shaven, would have more of a coyote appearance. The famous photograph shows four strong chins. Only Harvey Logan looks like a coyote, and Nixon tentatively identified him. After studying the photo of Harvey Logan, which you sent me, that he is number two, he wrote. As for Robert number three, Nixon added with obvious hesitation, I'm also confident now that he was Harry Alonzo, a.k.a. the Sundance Kid. This seems scarcely a firm identification, but on May 15, 1901, the Pinkerton Detective Agency offered a $6,000 reward for the arrest of the Winnemucca robbers. The flyer contained descriptions of the three men who entered the bank and stated, After a thorough investigation, and from information received, George Parker, alias Butch Cassidy, and Harry Longabaugh, alias Harry Alonzo, who later became known as the Sundance Kid, are suspected of being two of the men engaged in this robbery. While the flyer was being distributed to law officers around the country, Butch, Sundance, and Etta Place were in New York enjoying a farewell round of parties and pleasures before sailing to Buenos Aires and a new series of adventures in South America. A Pinkerton detective eventually tracked them to Argentina, but didn't pursue them into the interior where they were ranching at Chulila in Chubut province. When Butch and Sundance were reported killed by soldiers of the Bolivian army a few years later, the Pinkertons closed their files on them. This much we know. Butch Cassidy didn't rob the Winnemucca Bank, and he didn't send that photograph. The rest is theory, but there's plenty of that. Lee Burke came to believe that some local person, C.E. Rowe perhaps, or one of the suspects listed in the paper, or someone whose name never came to light, recognized the bank as a plum right for the picking and got word to the Wild Bunch in Wyoming. Then some of the boys rode in to look the situation over and later did the job. At age 91, Lee Case could plainly remember his shock and surprise at seeing his cowboy friends from the livery stable stampeding out of town in a blaze of gunfire, but he couldn't recall that they ever mentioned their names. Thus ends the Winnemucca story, which I found fascinating. We'll return with part two and the story of how they finally caught up with Kid Curry next week Sunday at noon Eastern time. Until then, everyone, please do share our show with others. And please do, if you're enjoying the show, send us a review. And don't forget to catch 1001 Stories from the Old West, as well as our other shows, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, all providing great stories, excellent short and long stories, and the very best of 1001. Thanks for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. 
Until next Sunday, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.